We always like to start by saying welcome to anybody that is here for the first time in our sanctuary or if you're joining us online. Welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and uh, we are going to spend a quick moment in prayer for Israel. I know uh, most of us are now aware of what's going on and seeing news reports and developments. And um, granted, many of those developments are very intriguing in the light of prophecy, especially end times prophecy. And so um, ultimately, God is in control. God knows, um, and God's plan will not be thwarted. And so we just pray in the meantime, for God's will to be done, but we also pray for the safety of those that are in harm's way, and so please join me in prayer for Israel. Father, we lift up Israel, God, to you. We lift up that nation, Lord, that is so special to you. Lord, that you speak so readily about throughout your word, and we know, God, that there's a very specific plan you have for this nation as we come to the end of this era of Earth's history. Lord, we pray for their safety. Lord, we pray for peace in Israel. We pray specifically for those that are still hostage, that they would be released safely without injury, Lord. We pray for the families, Lord, that have lost loved ones already. And we pray you would comfort them and bring them peace. Lord, we pray for the innocent on the Palestinian side of this conflict, Lord. God, as we read that they are trying to evacuate Gaza and Hamas is blocking the road so that they cannot evacuate. Lord, we pray that you would just clear that away, that they would be safe. We pray for those that are perpetrating the violence, that you would hold them accountable, that you would deal with them, Lord, and we know you're going to. We pray, God, for developments that are starting to happen around the world with North Korea and Lebanon and other areas, Lord. God, just do a work, do a mighty work. Be glorified, Lord. But ultimately, through all of this, God, may your glory shine forth and people come to know you as their Lord and Savior. That God, regardless of what happens to them in this life, they would have the, the glory of eternity in paradise with you, heaven awaiting them, because they know you, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we lift all up to you and we thank you. Do your work, Lord. May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I do not find it, uh, well, I do find it interesting <laughs> that we're studying through Revelation as all of this is starting to happen around the world today. Um, this morning, we're going to be starting Revelation chapter 16, which is the final seven judgments of the tribulation period, known as the bowl judgments. And today, we're only going to be looking at the first five of these seven, and then the reaction of those upon the earth to these judgments of God. If you remember, chapter 15 closed with God closing the temple in heaven as his smoke and his glory filled the temple, effectively blocking off access to what would be the place of mercy, the mercy seat there, and he blocked that place off after the seven angels had been called forth from the spiritual holy of holies getting ready to, to do their task, to pour out these bowls of judgment, ready to execute that judgment, which is the penalty, the penalty for the true testimony against mankind's sin and guilt. The picture there is that, that mercy and forgiveness is no longer accessible at that moment for that time had passed, a very grievous time that'll come in the history of man. 
chapter 15 as it was given to the, John the Apostle and delivered to the churches and has been with us ever since, I believe is very specifically meant to warn people about the future to come, to warn those about the future that comes so they would turn to Christ, so that they would repent of their sin, believe in God and who he is, put their faith in Jesus Christ, God the Son, in his death on the cross for their salvation, to trust in all of that, that they would be saved. And we know in our time today, our, 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 our earth existence today, mankind has been given many, many, many opportunities to repent of their sin, many chances to turn from their sin and to turn towards Christ, and the same will happen during the tribulation period, that there will still be the gospel going forth, the gospel being preached Mankind will still have the opportunity to turn to Christ, and, and we're blessed to say that, that during tribulation, the Bible teaches that many will indeed turn to Jesus for their salvation, but many will not, because the world system from the top down, the global government, the global economy, the one world religion from the top down is firmly against God, firmly against Jesus Christ and the gospel and all that God stands for, and thus we come to chapter 16, the culmination of this tribulation time where God's final and full wrath is poured out upon those who deny him. So we'll be looking at the first 11 verses this morning, verses 1 through 8 and 10, detail the, the final or the first five bowls that are poured out with a specific purpose in God's plan of judgment, and then we'll be looking at verses 9 and 11, which gives us a very clear picture of man's persistent refusal to honor God. You know, it's a bleak picture, it's a difficult picture, but if you're in this room this morning or if you're watching online today or you're watching this video sometime in the future, all of this is meant to be a warning to you. That salvation is needed because God's judgment will come upon sin. And if you don't know him today, you need to know him today to be forgiven for your sin against God, for your breaking of his law. Because when his judgment comes, it'll be right, it'll be just, it'll be holy, and you'll have nothing to say about it because it'll be right. But today he offers salvation to all, all who would come, call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And so listen today, hear him today. And for those of us that know Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you would just be, continue to be motivated. We are given the glimpse of the future so that we would be armed and equipped to go out and warn people about that future, to take the gospel to those that need it, and I pray you would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to do exactly that. But let's pray, because we're going to spend some time in worship first, and then we will get into the word. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you revealed to us yourself in your word, Lord. We know this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it shows us your heart, and God, so many of us in this world today might want to hear all about the, the love that you have. But God, when we read about your judgment and how you feel about sin and the wrath that will be poured out on those who, who continue in sin and refuse you, Lord, it's a difficult picture. But God, we know you pour out your judgment upon sin because you are a loving God and a loving Father. And Lord, we've seen through this revelation period or this tribulation period as you've been pouring out your judgments, as they've been getting increasingly more uh, just pervasive and, and increasingly more uh, 
hurtful and painful and destructive, Lord. We know that even in that, there's a grace from you, that you would give people an opportunity to the very last moment to turn to you as Lord and Savior. And so we pray, God, that, that you would just continue to do that even today, Lord. We're not yet in this time of tribulation, but we know it's coming. God, we see things happening around our world that might be precursors, that might be fulfillment of prophecy, God, as we've been studying and, and looking forward to, to what's going to happen, Lord. But at the end of everything, God, and every single day of our lives, Lord, we know you are holy. We know you are just. We know you are love. We know you are light. We know you are perfect and righteous. And we submit our lives to you. And we pray for those that haven't yet done that, that they would do so. That they would recognize their sin against you and turn to you for the salvation that you so desperately want to offer them. Lord, we love you. <clears throat> we worship you. We worship you in the good times. We worship you in the bad times. We worship you for your blessings and we worship you for your judgments, God. And so we worship you now. As God Almighty, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who loves us so desperately, we thank you for everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's get into Revelation this morning. We are in Revelation chapter 16, uh, verses uh, 1 through 11. And, and as I mentioned in the intro, this, this chapter is an overview picture of the seven last final judgments of God at the end of the tribulation period. There have been a few places throughout Revelation where we have a chapter or two that kind of gives us an overview of all the seals, and then there's a couple chapters after that, like kind of go back and zoom in on a couple moments during that time. And then we had the seven trumpet judgments, and then a few chapters that have gone back to zoom in. For, uh, chapter 16 of Revelation is another one of these overviews, and then the chapters that are going to follow, we're going to go back and zoom in to some of the moments that take place during these bold judgments. But if you remember, the word bowl there that we see as these angels are handed these bowls, it's a Greek word for a, a shallow bowl, like a, like a saucer, if you will. And it's the type of implement that was used in ancient worship to pour out what would be a liquid offering or a libation. And the idea, and the reason we bring that up is to point out that that although these, the judgments that we've seen so far, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, all of these has been spaced out over the course of tribulation, but these final bowl judgments all pour out in a rapid succession. Some commentators even believe that, that all seven of these judgments that we read about that are so rapid actually take place during the final 30 days of the seven-year tribulation period. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's the case, but I do know that they appear to pour out very quickly, and the idea of these shallow bowls means that these judgments are going to fall in rapid succession upon the earth. Now, there are similarities between the bowl judgments and the seven trumpets, if you will, um, and there are also similarities between what we see in these judgments and the plagues that fell upon Egypt in the Old Testament. But I do want to point out that although there are similarities, I do not believe that they are the same thing. I do not believe the seven bowl judgments are the same exact judgments as the trumpets that are the same exact judgments as the seals. Some do have that interpretation, but I don't see that bearing out. And there's a couple reasons why, but one of the big ones is that there are differences between the bowls and the trumpets. And then some people even go, oh, they're the same as the plagues in Egypt. Well, there, there's differences, although there are similarities. For example, the plagues of Egypt, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read about those plagues, 
Um, there were 10 of them, not seven, but they were a localized judgment. They were a judgment that, that fell upon the Egyptians, and the children of Israel in the midst of that were, were exempt from those things. They were virtually untouched by these judgments, but it wasn't a worldwide judgment. It was a very localized judgment that happened there. Then when you look at the seven trumpet judgments, we see that they are what we call partial judgments during the tribulation period. If you remember, it was one-third of the grass that was destroyed, one-third of the waters, one-third of the seas, one-third of, man- of mankind that was affected by these trumpet judgments. But when you get to the bowl judgments, we see that they are global and they are total. They are complete. They are a culmination, a full expression of the terrors and horrors of God's judgment. They aren't partial. They aren't localized, but they are a full, complete inundating of judgment upon the entire earth. And so for those reasons, I believe they are different than the trumpet judgments and and different from what we see in the plagues of Egypt. But starting in verse 1 now, uh, Revelation 16, we see that these angels who were prepared in chapter 15 are now instructed to go and to execute the judgment of God. So read with me in Revelation 16:1. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. And so the loud voice there that's coming from the temple, that, that's the voice of God. God is now giving the final instructions to the angels to go carry out his will. And we see that the first angel here pours out a very specific bowl that involves the, the, the physiology of people. We see a physical judgment falling upon the people of the earth here. And it's really aimed very specifically. It's aimed very directly at those who have refused him and aligned themselves with the enemy, Satan. Now, God doing specific targeted judgments like this, this is not unknown to Scripture. It's something we do see elsewhere in targeted judgments of the past. In Joshua chapter 10, for example, when Israel was fighting the Amorites, um, if you know that story, you might remember that large hailstones fell from the sky and only hit the Amorites. Didn't hit Israel, right? God is a marksman, right? He knows who he wants to hit, right? He, he's, oops, didn't mean to get that Israelite. No, that doesn't happen with God, right? He knows. And so we see this example in Joshua 10 um, that, that God very specifically targeted and, and was very selective in who he poured his judgment out on, like we see here in Revelation 16. You also might remember the story of, of Israel um, worshiping the calf when they were wandering the wilderness there. And in that story, it tells us that the Lord brought a plague only upon those who worshiped the calf. Those who were obedient to him didn't fall under the judgment. And so, um, but here in Revelation 16, on this first bold judgment as it pours out, it tells us the target. It's on all of those who had the mark of the beast and who had worshiped its image. Now, you might remember from previous chapters, we learned that there would be this mark that the false prophet and the Antichrist would bring upon the earth in this mark that people would be required to take to accept that would be either on the, the hand or the forehead as a sign of uh, uh, identification that they are then worshiping the beast. And we were taught this in Revelation, that this is going to be something that the Antichrist and the false prophet do to enforce their control upon the earth during tribulation time. 
We know that people are going to have a great incentive to take the mark because they're not going to be able to buy or sell without it. So they're not going to be able to go to the store and get groceries, and they're not going to be able to get gas in their vehicles. They, they probably won't be able to get things that are legally required, like car insurance stuff. They'll be like, oh, you don't have the mark? You can't do, um, uh, you can't do uh, business. You can't make any transactions. And so people are going to be like, gosh, I have to take this mark. But it is also clear in Revelation that the taking of this mark, people are not going to be confused that what it means is that you're worshiping the Antichrist as God. Because in the abomination of desolation, that's exactly what he did when he em- entered the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that he declares himself to be God and demands worship. And so people aren't going to be unaware of what it means to take the mark. We're also told that the false prophet then creates this image there in Jerusalem and commands people to worship it. And somehow this image has some type of sentience, right? Some type of intelligence to it where it not only makes people worship it, but then it is able to kill people who refuse. And so there's all kinds of conjecture about what that could be. We're not exactly sure, but we know that there's going to be this mark. We know there's going to be this image, and we know people are going to take the mark and worship the image and know full well what they're doing. Why does God judge that? Because it's a direct breaking of God's law, specifically the first and second commandments. If you remember, the first commandment of God was, you shall have no other gods before me. So those who say, I'm going to worship Satan by taking this mark, well, you broke it. The second commandment, if you remember, is do not make an idol or an image and bow down in worship of that idol. That was, that was the second commandment. Don't create some graven image and worship it. Well, the false prophet said, here's this image of the beast, and people started to worship it. And so again, the, the mark in this image, they were introduced back in chapter 13, if you want to go review, but those who acquiesce know full well what they're doing. They know that they are worshiping. And so The judgment that falls upon those who choose this is severe. It was a judgment that was predicted back in Revelation chapter 14. If you remember there in Revelation 14 verse 9, it says, And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. And it said, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Well, that wrath that is now poured full strength out of the bowl here is these, starts with these painful sores. These painful sores, and now, yes, that is reminiscent on one of the plagues that fell upon Egypt, the sixth plague specifically. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 8, it said, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So a very similar judgment that's falling upon people. Now the festering boils we read about in Exodus are are very similar or the same as the painful sores we're reading about here in Revelation. That word sores just is referring to some type of open skin infection. Um, It could refer to an abscess or an ulcer or a boil, right? So there's there's a connection here. Now, I'm going to spare you the graphic description of boils, okay, um, because it's kind of gross. But if you've ever had a boil, you might be familiar that they're, they're gross. They're oozy. They're, they're painful, right? Um, it's a very painful condition to get a boil. And for those of you that have ever experienced one, imagine being covered head to toe in them. Incredibly painful, incredibly nasty. And uh, medically, 
What we do know is that these types of skin conditions, these boils, they're, they're typically an outward display of an interior, uh, in, inward problem. They're an outward display of an internal problem. So it's not like it's acne or a pimple or something. There's usually some type of bacterial infection or something going on inside that is now manifesting as this boil upon the skin. So the idea of this judgment, this first bold judgment, is that the inward problem of the people is what's being judged. Their commitment, their affections being given over to Satan, their worship being given over to Satan and the Antichrist instead of God, they have an outward mark now that identifies their inward alignment. Now, the mark that's on their forehead or their hand, that's the outward mark that says, I'm worshiping Satan, I'm worshiping him. And so God gives them another outward mark that identifies judgment of that inward heart inclination, right? This outward sign, the mark of the beast, it's a reflection of your inward worship of Satan. Well, okay. I'm going to judge that, and now you have boils all over the place, right? Pretty gross, pretty painful. And that whole idea that God looks at the heart, God looks at the inside, and then sometimes we'll have external uh, consequence or judgment of that, that's also something we've seen in scriptures. You guys might remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he said, you know, you guys look so religious on the outside. You look like you have it all together. But inwardly, he said, you are whitewashed tombs full of wickedness. And so here in Revelation, we see at this time of tribulation, the inward corruption is now physically erupting, if you will, bursting out as painful sores and boils upon people. Now, there's no indication here on exactly how God caused these boils to, to come upon people, these very painful sores. Um, there's a couple, you know, interpretive ideas about this. One, there could be a natural explanation, and we do know that God does work through the natural world he created to affect his purposes. And so, yeah, there could be a natural uh, medical explanation for these boils that God is causing. Um, or it could be something completely supernatural with no explanation at all. Some people think that during the tribulation period, there's going to be nuclear fallout from the detonations of nuclear weapons during wars and stuff that are taking place, and the radiation poisoning that comes from that is usually, or can result in painful sores and boils upon the skin. You guys might remember when Chernobyl blew up and the, rev the radiation went out everywhere, people in the vicinity developed painful sores and boils upon their skin. So some think that, that there's going to be nuclear war during the tribulation period. And again, I don't know if you've read it recently, but um, America sent some of its uh, naval ships to South Korea to dock over there, and North Korea again is going, no, 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 you're going to cause nuclear war. We're going to drop nukes on everybody. And so it's an interesting uh, thing to consider. Some think that these boils and these, these sores, because they're tied to the mark of the beast specifically, um, are a result of, of technology failing under the skin, Right, you know, um, chips and implanted chips to identify people. That stuff's already been invented. Companies are already using it. They use it on animals. I think I referenced it once where even back in the 90s, our, our own government was considering making it a law that babies were chipped so that their information could be tracked, their location could be tracked. Um, fortunately, that didn't come to, come to pass, but one of these technologies is, is how they power these chips in the, in, under the skin, in the hand or the forehead, is through like lithium batteries. And, and if a lithium battery bursts under the skin, it causes very painful sores in the skin. And so some people go, ooh, ooh, see, I see it, <laughs> right? 
the chip. If you take the chip, God's just going to cause all the batteries to burst one day and everybody gets these painful sores. But again, it could be some supernatural, unexplained thing that causes these sores. But that's the first bold judgment, is God very specifically goes into the earth and targets those who had aligned themselves with Satan, who chose to worship Satan and not God, who have denied God's gospel, denied Jesus Christ, and he judges them physically. Verse 3. The second poured out his bowl into the sea, and it turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. Now, again, this is very similar to the first plague of Egypt in the Old Testament. You guys remember that the Nile turned to blood, right? Um, This is also like the second trumpet judgment, where in the second trumpet judgment, we read that a third of the sea died, Um, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and we read that there was a part of the sea becoming like blood. But here, there's a difference. It's not a third of the sea becoming like blood. It's not a third of the creatures in the sea dying. What does it say there? All of it became like blood. And all life in the sea died. It's a total judgment now. It's a complete judgment. And, and, and it's kind of gross because it says the sea turned to blood like that of a dead person. Again, to spare you all the gruesome details of that, but when a person dies, there's certain uh, things that happen to the blood that are pretty gross and, and nasty. The, the blood can become very thick, very dark, very viscous, and he's saying the ocean becomes like that, the entire ocean, all of it, not a third of it, all of it now becomes blood. And you'll notice there, he doesn't say it becomes like blood which is one of the indicators we've seen throughout Revelation when he's going, I'm not saying it turned into blood, I'm saying it became, it, it, it had the characteristics of blood. Here he's going, no, it becomes blood. The sea, all the oceans become blood as this bowl is poured out upon the oceans. Verse four, the third bowl. It says, the third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And so again, like the Nile becoming blood, Like the third trumpet, if you go back and read the third trumpet, it says a third of the rivers and springs became bitter and poisoned as as the wormwood fell upon them. Um, The idea here is, is both the salt water and the clean drinking water is now corrupted. But again, just like the difference between the second trumpet and the second bowl here, we see that it's not a third of the rivers being corrupted. It's not a third of the rivers becoming blood. It's all of them. And unlike the third trumpet where it says they became bitter, here it says, no, no, the clean drinking water now becomes blood as well. And this is a critical thing to happen. If you can imagine on the earth that all of the sources of clean drinking water are corrupted. They all have become blood. You can't drink blood, all right? It's not good for you. It is not healthy for you. And so around the world today, places where clean drinking water is contaminated, you find disease, you find dehydration, and all sorts of issues, right? Humans need clean drinking water. This is why there's so many organizations around the world that will fund um, to go build wells at villages in Africa to give people access to clean drinking water because it's such an essential part to being healthy. But here what we're seeing is at the end of tribulation period, all of the clean water sources are gone. And if you add to that, what happened uh, back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, at the time of the sixth seal, I'll read it for you. It says this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, 
wind is very crucial to what is called the hydrological cycle, right? Water from the ocean evaporates into the air. The wind carries it across the land. In the process of it being carried across the land, it is like desalinated or purified. It then cools and condenses, and then it comes down back to the earth in the form of rain, in the form of salt, fresh water, and then those fresh water sources then flow back out to the ocean, get salinated again, and you have this, this cycle that is a part of the earth functioning in a way it's supposed to function. Now, imagine the wind is gone. The clouds don't move anymore. The wind doesn't blow anymore, as we read there in Revelation 7.1. And without the wind to carry moisture across the land, what would happen to the land? It would dry out. It would become parched. It would become a vast desert because of lack of water. And we have areas of our earth today where we see that. Because there's no water that goes across it, it's just a, a wasteland, a desert wasteland. Well, by the time we get to Revelation 16 here, a third of the earth has already been affected by the judgments of God. The wind had not been blowing for a period of time, and now you add all to that in this final judgment that all the fresh water sources now become blood. You think about that, how long, how long can people survive off of soda and juice? Not too long, right? Some of us would be like, oh, I get to drink soda all day? That's heaven. No, you, you drink soda long enough, you start to realize, ah, it's gross, right? You need water. Your body needs water. Then you go, well, you know, if this judgment falls upon earth, we got bottled water everywhere. Well, how long until the bottled water is used up? The population of earth right now is over 8 billion people. That's a lot of bottles of water. And so what you're going to have in this time of tribulation is people dying of thirst. People um, living in a land that is dying because it's parched and there's no moisture and so the trees are dying and the grasses are dying and, and cattle is dying. It's just, there's just devastation. And people look at this sometimes and I'm sure people during that time are going to be experiencing this and go, how can a God of love even allow this? This is, this is torturous. It's so unfair. It's so unjust. It's so unrighteous. Well, verse 5, the angel anticipated that, and we read in verse 5, I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, the Holy One, who is and who was, because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and of the prophets, you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They deserve it. That, that's not the warm, fuzzy Jesus, right? That's not the Jesus in the picture with the little kids sitting on his knee and, you know, the little baby lambs next to him. That, that's, that's not the Jesus we prefer to, to think about. Verse 7, it says, I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You know, the angel here is very quick to defend the righteousness of God. It's something that, that, that the church can, can learn from. There's many places around the world today where the church is quick to apologize for God. Because we, we, we struggle with rationalizing God's judgment on sin and consequence for sin and God allowing consequence to happen. And, and we wrestle with that. And so sometimes Christians might be tempted to find themselves apologizing for God. 
apologizing for what the Bible says about things, and we can't, because God's ways are just. They're right. They're true. In God's infinite wisdom and his infinite holiness and his omnipotence and everything, when God pours out judgment, there is good reason for it. And there's no, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And this is what we see taking place here at the end of the tribulation period. It's like this angel is saying, look to the people of the earth. You, you, you've shed the blood of those who came to proclaim salvation to you. Those who came to preach to you good news. Those who, who did what, what, what Christ would call the church to do, that were they're feeding the widows and the orphans and taking care of people and doing what they can to get involved and, and, and all along bringing the good news of the salvation of Jesus, that God is real, that judgment is coming, and God wants to save you from the judgment of sin. We've all sinned and, and broken his law. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet, instead of responding to that message, he's saying you, you killed them, you shed their blood. And since you're so bloodthirsty, God will give them blood to drink. You want blood? He's going to give it to you. The idea here, and it's really a spiritual law that we do find throughout Scripture, is the idea, the law of sowing and reaping. Right? We've heard of that. You sow what you reap. You reject the free gift of salvation. What this verse tells us is you will get what you deserve. You reject the offer of God, you will get what you deserve. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, they will also reap. You can't live a life of, of rejecting God, rejecting Christ, a life of disobeying Him, a life of saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do my own thing, and not expect the punishment to come for that. A lot of us live that way today. A lot of people in the world have grown up in a, in, a, in, a, in a world now where there's no consequence for anything, right? There's no winners or losers. Everybody gets a partic participation trophy. There's no medals. Everybody's recognized. Right? We've, we've created this stuff in our society to take away the very concept of consequences. And the, the moral relativity of our culture is, is, is just rapidly and, and aggressively pushing this idea that there is no wrong, there's only right. And it's your right, and your right, and your right, and your right. And we all get to decide what our truth is and live however we want. And how dare you tell me my truth is wrong? You should be silenced for that. You should be censored for that. And yet what we see here is the result of mocking God. That if you reject Jesus Christ all the way to the point of death, it's too late. These people that are still on the earth during tri uh, uh, tribulation time have rejected God over and over and over and over and over again. And in that verse in Galatians 7, when he said, God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. The verse goes on to say, so if you, if you sow good, you'll reap good. But if you sow bad, you'll reap bad. There are many who, who live thinking, I'm getting away with so much. God, God is, 
God is letting me get away with so much. I'm sinning and I know it and nothing is happening. God hasn't done anything about it and so therefore I'm going to keep doing it. And yet it may be true that God hasn't done anything about it yet. Yet is the important word there. Yet. Whatever a person sows, they will reap. That's a truth. Sometimes you reap those consequences quickly. Sometimes you reap those consequences years later, but you will reap what you sow. Biblically, we look at very interesting examples of that. You read, remember the story of Pharaoh back in Egypt, right? He tried to drown all the young Hebrew male babies, right? Drown them all so that the population can't grow. Find all the male children and drown them. How did Pharaoh die? He drowned in the Red Sea. Very interesting description, right? Talking about all the waters being turned to blood. Remember the story of Haman who built these huge gallows to hang Mordecai the Jew. How did he die? He hung on the very gallows he built. There was a a French atheist in the 18th century named Voltaire who hated Christianity, hated it. Hated everything about it, and he spent so much time in his house writing these very just violent missives against Christianity. And one of the things he wrote once is he said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took the 12 apostles to rear. Well, within 20 years of his death, that house that he wrote that from was one of the largest centers of Bible distribution in the world. You know, God will have his way. And yes, God loves you. And God died for you, absolutely. He did. But he did that so that you could be saved from the judgment to come. Because if you reject Jesus Christ, the Bible is very clear that God will give you what you deserve. And God will give us what we deserve unless we allow Jesus to take what we deserve. That's what he did on the cross. If you confess your sin and turn your life over to Jesus Christ, all the wrath of God against sin, all the judgment that he has against sin, all of it that you deserve because you have broken his law, all of it, Jesus removes it from you, takes it upon himself. He experiences all that judgment in your place. And this is a transcendent truth when it comes to the wrath of God on sin. Ultimately, Jesus will either take it for you or you will get to take it upon yourself. That's a truth, a scriptural truth that is, that is hard to say sometimes, but the most loving thing we could possibly say to somebody. That if you reject Jesus Christ, you will get the opportunity to pay the price for your own sin. But you're not going to like it. And so here we see in Revelation the world is getting what it deserves. Getting what is due to it because it has rejected the forgiveness and salvation found in Jesus Christ. And we can't forget it is just, as the angel said. It is right, as the angel said. It is proper. There is no way to go, God is not being fair. God is being too hard. Nope. It's all done at this point. Verse 8. The fourth poured out his bowl upon the sun. It was allowed to scorch the people with fire, and people were scorched by the intense heat. So we've had these boils fall, 
And then, boom, the whole ocean turns to blood, and all the living creatures in it, all the whales, all the fish, all the dolphins, the poor dolphins, right? Everything in the sea, they die. The fresh water sources all become blood. There's no more drinking water anywhere. We can't get it. And then now the sun is allowed to scorch people. Now, this is, interestingly enough, not the same as a similar trumpet judgment, but in contrast to it, because there's a trumpet judgment where it says one-third of the sun was darkened. Some of you may experience a little bit of that yesterday, right? We had the eclipse. Anybody go out and see that? In my house, we totally forgot the eclipse was happening, and so we went outside and we're like, it looks weird, what's going on? Right, Irene's comment was like, I feel like I'm wearing my sunglasses, but I don't have my sunglasses on, right? And then it was like, oh, there was an eclipse, right? Crazy. But here we see that this bold judgment, it says the sun flares and it burns hot and it's allowed to scorch people with fire and heat. That word scorch there, it literally means a painful, painful burning. Now this could be something like a, like a solar flare, right? People have been talking about that for a while, scientists. Ooh, solar flares. The sun's going to flare and it's going to cast this wave of radiation and burn the earth. Um, some people think it could be like an alteration of the earth's atmosphere and how it lets light through. Um, you know, sometimes our atmosphere, depending on what's going on with the cloud cover, it can like tweak the wavelengths of radiation that are allowed through. We experience this um, in, have you ever gotten an overcast sunburn? Anybody ever gone out when it's overcast? You're like, oh, there's so much cloud cover. The sun is not even in the sky. And you get a worse sunburn than you would if the sun was out. Yeah, that's simply because the cloud cover attenuated the wavelengths of radiation that allowed through, and it burned you even more. So some think that could be that type of thing. Um, Something's going to happen. And this was predicted in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, speaking of the end times. He writes, for look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. And so it's really a picture for those who are being judged, a preview of coming attractions. Right? This is the preview of coming tri- This is the prequel. Because this is what you're going to experience in hell forever. As the fires of hell burn and consume. And that judgment will last for eternity. And so God here allows the sun to scorch them. Verse 10. The fifth bowl. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues because of their pain. Now, we have all experienced blackouts from time to time. We had one here at church, you know, a few years back. The power just goes and nothing works anymore. And for those of us that are so accustomed to electricity and being able to turn on the light and being able to have access to that, you know, the power goes out and we're just like cavemen. Uh, what do we do? How do we survive? It's a weird thing when it happens. Some people think that at this time of the fifth bowl that, that the fourth bowl being poured out was the sun's supernova, right? It's supernova and scorched the earth, and then after the supernova, it burns out and goes black, and that's the end of the sun. And there's some interesting uh, uh, possibilities there because later on it says that when, when, when God is present, there is no need for the sun because he is the light, Some think um, this could be a result of nuclear winter if nuclear weapons are released during tribulation period and then, you know, it creates that that greenhouse effect and and, and it prevents the sun from going through and so it gets hot and then it gets dark. We're not sure exactly. But it tells us that this bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast. 
That word throne there means, um, uh, it's talking about the throne that a king would sit in, right? It's the idea that, that the throne was a symbol of high status and high power and authority. We read in Revelation 13, 2, that the beast or the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. And so his, his power to be able to do what he's doing, to, to enact control over the earth, to force people to worship him, all of this stuff, and then God pours out this bowl and the entire kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness. It's like his power is being cut off, that the beast is, is losing his power that he's been allowed to, to exercise this whole time. And, you know, scripturally, we know the, the, the metaphorical differences that are used often. God is light. It tells us in First John. We see that the absence of light is often used as a metaphor for evil, a metaphor for Satan himself. Satan is called the prince of darkness, right? The fir- very first creative act of God in Genesis, he said, let there be light. The very first created act of God was to dispel the darkness, to get rid of it. He created then the sun and the moon, and it says, and light was. In the New Testament, we're called to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then in contrast to that, it says if we choose to walk in sin, we're walking in darkness. Ephesians 5.11, it says, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness. And so it, it seems only fitting that the kingdom of the beast, this kingdom that is worshiping Satan and all that, um, is doused in darkness. That's what you are. That's what you're about. Boom, darkness you will have. And that's very reminiscent of the ninth plague in Egypt. Exodus 10.21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt a darkness that can be felt. So deep, so foreboding, so thick, the darkness could be felt. And then after that in Egypt came the 10th plague. As the angel of death passed over and the death of the firstborn came and incidentally it was that judgment, that death, that was what sprung Israel out of Egypt and brought them to their salvation, their, their, their exodus out into everything God had for them. And, and then, of course, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, it tells us that darkness covered the land as God's wrath fell upon him, the wrath that you and I deserve. But here at the end of tribulation, we see darkness falling again. But this time, the darkness is falling upon those unrepentant of mankind, those who refuse Jesus, And as that darkness fell on Jesus on the cross, as he was taking the full wrath of God for our sin, now we see the people getting what they deserve, who have rejected Jesus, and the darkness and the judgment is going to fall upon them. It falls upon the Antichrist, it falls on his global kingdom and everything it stands for, and that darkness is always just a reminder of the darkness of sin and wickedness and evil. Now this fifth bowl was predicted by the prophets as well. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2, speaking of the Lord's glory in Zion at the end of all things, it says, for look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples. Joel chapter 2, verse 2, speaking of the end times, calls it a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. And then in Mark chapter 13, speaking of, of at the end of the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Christ, it tells us the sun will be darkened. Then, of course, we remember the words of Jesus where it says, men love darkness instead of the light. And so God finally is going, you want darkness so much. Here you go. Here you go. Now, it mentions there that people nod at their tongues because of the pain. 
Um, this could be a callback that there's something about the darkness like in Exodus where they could feel it, it hurt somehow. Um, it could have something to do with some you know, radiation type of thing. We don't know. But have you ever been in so much pain in one part of your body that you cause pain in another to take your mind off the pain in the first part? Right? You stubbed your toe so you pinch your hand <laughs> or something. Right? It's kind of this picture here that they're, they're in such pain from these boils and pain from the, the, the dehydration and the thirst and pain from um, this, this, this sunburn and now this abject darkness. They're in just so much pain and they're just trying to take their mind off of it. But what is the response of the people to all of this? Look back in verse 9. So they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. And then look at verse 11. After they gnawed their tongues from the pain, it says they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. That word blaspheme means to slander someone, to revile someone, to defame someone, or to, to speak irreverently or disrespectful about someone. So instead of turning to God and saying, God, we're so sorry for our sin and our rejection of you, no, it's just they, they continue to revile him. They continue to, to disrespect his name. And so these first five bowls, they're a collective picture of the plagues upon the creation that mankind has extolled so much. It's all about Mother Nature. It's about Gaia. It's about us. It's about our power. We are the pinnacle of creation, and God's judging all of it. He's judging all of it. And yet still, they did not turn. They did not repent. Does they blaspheme the name of God, and they blaspheme the God of heaven, just everything he is. But it tells us something interesting there. They knew who was judging them. They knew who was judging them, and yet in the height of their arrogance and the height of their stubbornness, they, they would say, I know it's God. I know he is real. I know the judgments are from him, but I will not change. I will not repent. And that's just an unfortunate picture because we do see in Scripture as well that people can reject Jesus so much. They can reject Jesus for so long that their hearts become so hard against God that it's too late. Verse 11 here, interestingly, in Revelation chapter 16, it's the last reference in the book of Revelation to mankind's unwillingness to change. We will not read about it again. This is the last time, the last reference. They will not change. What we see from here forward is God saying, it's done. I've given you every opportunity. Judgment is falling. Judgment is final. Judgment is complete. And then we're going to move into the second coming and all of it. But through all of this, through all of God's judgments, God's trying to get people's attention. He's trying to get them to, to, to pay attention, but we, we refuse. And here they refuse. They blaspheme God instead. They blaspheme his name, and, and now it's, it's over. It's too late. It's too late. You know, the time is fast coming when you won't have the opportunity to repent. You won't have the opportunity to be forgiven. You won't have the opportunity to be saved. That time is coming, and that time is coming quickly. But today, you still have the opportunity. Today, you can still repent of your sin. Today, you could still call out to God, and God is listening and will still forgive you. God is calling every single human being to repent of their sin. You know that word repent, there's a lot of stuff taught about it. It means to change direction. That's what repentance is. You know, being sorry and continuing to do the same thing isn't really being sorry that the thing you were doing is wrong. 
It's just being sorry about the consequences. Right? Some are just like, I'm so sorry my, my drinking is messing up my marriage. I'm so sorry that my lying is messing up my relationships. I'm so sorry my anger is, 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 is destroying my, my, my family relationships. My kids are afraid of me. I'm so sorry about the consequences of my sin. But so what if you keep drinking and keep lying and keep being angry and keep sinning? So what that you're sorry? It doesn't change anything. I read a story about a Sunday school class, and the kids were asked, what is the definition of repentance? And one of the kids is, it's being sorry that you sin. And another kid raised their hand, and they go, no, that's wrong. It's being sorry enough to quit sinning. What a unique description of repentance. You know, God will allow the consequences of sin to happen to us that we may turn from sin turn to him. He will allow the consequences of disobedience that we would turn from disobedience and to obedience. And repentance, it's, like, it's like, like you're walking down the street and God comes up behind you and taps you on the shoulder and he goes, hey, turn around. Stop going that way. Go this way. That's, that's repentance, right? He says, follow me. Go my way. Go my direction. Follow my plan. Follow my purpose for your life. Stop going that way. Let's go this way. That way is going to lead to destruction. This way is good. And, and when we say, okay, I lay down my life, I'll follow you. God, I'll follow your direction. I'll follow your way. That's repentance. That's repentance. The people of the world at the end of tribulation, it tells us here, will refuse to do that. Will refuse. Instead, they blaspheme God. They slander his name. They speak ill of him and those who preach and teach his word and Again, God has sent 144,000 evangelists during this time, preached the gospel worldwide. He had these two witnesses in Jerusalem that were doing miracles, and the whole world saw it. He even had an angel fly through the skies preaching the gospel. And yet they still won't change. Why? I think it's because they kept rejecting Christ over and over and over, so much so that their hearts hardened to the point where they were beyond hope, where the truth of the gospel simply ceased to have any effect on them. And maybe the truth of God feels that way to you today. You've heard it, you've been to church, people shared with you, and the truth just feels like it's not having an effect on your heart anymore. You've heard it, but you refuse to let go of your sin. You refuse. You won't stop drinking, regardless of the damage it's doing to your marriage. You won't stop lying. You won't stop the anger despite the, the devastation that that, that sin is, is, is bringing into your life. You won't yield. You won't be obedient to Christ. And you have every excuse, every reason, every justification why you can't stop the sin. Maybe you remember a time when God was knocking on the door of your heart. And you heard it. And you felt it. You felt that pull, you felt that tug, but for whatever reason, you just would not yield your life to Jesus. You wouldn't surrender and give your life to him, and you said, I'll do it later, I'm too young right now, I have my whole life ahead of me. Then maybe you hit your 30s and your 40s, and maybe you have kids now, a family, and Jesus is tugging on your heart, and you said, I'm too busy, I'll give my life to Jesus later. Then you've gotten older, and Maybe now you're going, you know, I'm just, I'm just too old. I'm just too set in my ways. I'll do it later. 
and later and later. Guess what? You keep waiting for later, one day you'll be dead. You'll die. And at that point, it's over. There's no chances left. There's no opportunity left to get right with your creator. Maybe he's speaking to you right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking into your heart right now about your need for him. I read a story about a rabbi who was asked by his students one time. The students said, Rabbi, what's the best day to repent? And the rabbi said, well, the last day of your life. And the students were like, what? What kind of answer is that, Rabbi? Who knows when their last day is? If you wait for that, you're going to miss the opportunity. And the rabbi said, exactly. That's why you should repent today. Because today might be the last day of your life. Nobody knows when it's time for them to punch out. Nobody knows. The people in Israel a week ago, I'm sure they weren't waking up that day and going, there's going to be this invasion from terrorists. The people at that festival didn't go to that festival and say, well, today this is the day the terrorists are going to show up and murder us. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you might be going about every day thinking, oh, every day's the same and every day's going to be fine. You don't know when your time is coming. And today might be your last opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because the time is coming when judgment is going to fall. And if you die on this earth without Jesus, that is the time of judgment. And the only question there will be, did Jesus take what you deserve? Or is it time for you to get what you deserve? Listen to the Lord. Don't keep hardening your heart. Don't keep refusing to repent. Let go of your sin. Submit your life to Jesus. Be saved. Be saved today. Let's pray. Father, we believe you, God. We believe your word. We believe it's true. We believe in your holiness. We believe in your love. We believe in your grace and your mercy. We believe that you offer salvation to us and forgiveness to us. But God, we can't believe that and reject that in your justice and holiness, you're also going to judge sin one day. So God, because your word teaches us, we believe it. And God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of your people, God, to believe it. To believe it with such passion that we would get involved in the mission of the church. That we are here to be a light on the hill, a a beacon for the gospel. Lord, that we are called to to get involved in helping people and ministering to people and we're to get involved in, in making this entity function so that this entity called the church could go out and accomplish its mission in the world. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would move on our hearts to remind us of what we're a part of. That we're a part of the most noble and important mission that has ever existed. That people would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. 
And Lord, if that means getting up and volunteering for things, if that means giving, if we're not giving, if that means giving more, if we are giving, if that means praying more, whatever that means, God, that we are called to be a part of this mission. And God, the reality that judgment is coming, the reality of the devastation that's going to fall upon people, Lord, may that move us. May that move us. But God, I also want to take opportunity. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that you have been speaking to this whole morning, anybody watching online that you've been speaking to, God, and they don't know you, Lord, maybe it's somebody that has never made a profession of faith, and for whatever reason, you have them here to hear this message this morning. Or God, maybe it's someone who has claimed to be a Christian, maybe even went forward in an altar call somewhere, Lord, but as they look at their life of disobedience, you are speaking to them now about the reality that they don't know you, that you don't know them, that they don't have salvation. Lord, those in those positions, God, if they're hearing this right now, Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would knock loudly, it would knock aggressively on their heart. That they would know in this moment that they need you. Because nobody knows if we're going to live to tomorrow. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds, but today, right now, God, we know you're speaking. And so I pray, that's bowed and eyes closed in this room, if you're in this room or if you're watching us online, and God has been speaking to you about your need for salvation, God has been speaking to you about, about the life you're living. That you're the one that's been living in sin thinking, I'm just getting away with it. And you've started to believe the lie that God's never going to judge me. But God today is telling you, judgment is coming. But I love you so much that I want to save you from it. If you're hearing that, I call to you right now to receive Jesus as your Savior. And if you want to do that and you're in this room, just where you're seated, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior this morning. If you're online and God is speaking to you, just type it in the chat. Say, I want to receive Jesus. Anybody here, anybody online, God is speaking to you in this moment. You know you need him as your Lord and Savior. You know you need to be saved. Call out to him. Let me pray with you. Anybody here? Just raise your hand where I could see it. All right. If you're online and you know you need Jesus, and if you're in this room and for whatever reason you're not raising your hand, it's not the hand raising that saves you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And this prayer is calling out to God, confessing your sin, inviting him in to be your Lord and Savior. And I believe, and the Bible teaches, you do this with sincerity in your heart. You do this in true faith. You are saved. Your heart will be changed. God will move in your life. You won't become a perfect person, but you'll become perfectly saved. And if you do try to go out and keep sinning, it's going to be miserable. Miserable, because you cannot continue to do that with the Spirit living within you. So if you want to receive Jesus today, pray with me. Say, Lord God, I believe in you. I believe, God, you came to this earth. I believe, God, you lived on this earth. The second person of what's called the Trinity. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in him. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that if I put my faith in that, trust in that atonement, that I will be saved, forgiven, set free from the power of sin and death. I do that now. Thank you for loving me that much, God. I invite you into my life. Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my master. Be my friend. Teach me how to live for you. Fill me right now with the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, enable me to live in obedience to God. Thank you for saving me from the wrath to come. Thank you for loving me so very much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning in the room, um, we, we have some packets. We have some information we want to give you. We call it a new believer's packet. But this whole thing that you're doing here, by, by inviting Christ into your life, you're starting a relationship with your creator. And we want to help you on that relationship. There are certain things you do in any relationship, right? You've got to talk to the person. Right? Marriages where nobody talks to each other, they don't do so well. Right? But if there's communication, it's good, right? We want you to talk to God and we want to teach you how to do that. We want to teach you how to worship God and praise Him and thank Him for what He's done in your life. We want to equip you with everything you need to, to have that successful relationship with God. And so please, if you received Christ this morning, come forward. Let me give you a new believer's packet or go out into the foyer. There's some back there. They're in a little white envelope. If you're online and you receive Jesus Christ this morning, let us know in chat. Then our moderators will, will chat you in private so we can get your address. We would love to mail one to you as well. For the rest of us, you know, what's going on around the world today, it's uh, very compelling um, in regards of, of what's to come. We believe that the end is coming. We believe it's coming quickly. Many of us have been praying that for years. Lord, come quickly. One day Jesus is going to show up. He's going to take us home with him. And it's just going to be glorious as we enter into that, that supper time, <laughs> that, that celebration with him as the bride of Christ. But until that happens, there's a number that God knows of how many people are going to get saved before he takes us out. It might be the next person you, you preach to. And if you're not preaching to them, come on. Get on it. I want to get out of here. It might be the person I'm not sharing with. We don't know. And the point is, is we're all called to, whether it's tracks, whether it's conversation, whether it's our evangelism ministry, whether it's street witnessing, there's so many ways, but share your faith that those who don't know Jesus would come to know him. And eventually, God's gonna take us home, amen? I cannot wait for that. Let's worship him. God bless you guys.